Welcome to Shakespeare and Pals, episode 19. Five sonnets, five sonnets. This is called Shakespeare and Pals because we go through Shakespeare's plays in chronological order and some of his pals, some of his influences, his peers and his legacy. And I think that this week is the first time we're doing both at once. We're going to do some of Shakespeare's sonnets and some of his pals' sonnets. Are you looking forward to this, Sophie? I have no media literacy when it comes to poetry. So I, 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 I guess, yes, uh, I am filled with trepidation, trepidation, dears. But you were psyched that you only had to read 14 times five lines of poetry. Oh yeah, no, I, I was very much so, yes. <laughs> and that's the good thing about this episode. We, we were running behind on some episodes, so we decided that, yes, let's put together a quick thing, just 70 lines of poetry. When it comes to discussing them, this will either take a very short amount of time or a very, very long amount of time. But that is still in the future for us. You can look at the running time and see if we manage to be concise. I have no trust in us. This time we are doing five sonnets. Five sonnets. Only two of them are by Shakespeare, because Shakespeare didn't invent the sonnet. In fact, we are doing one of the people who seems to have been the first person to do a sonnet in the English language, Sir Thomas Wyatt. We are doing Sir Thomas Wyatt's poem, Whoso list to hunt, I know where is an eind. We are also doing Sir Philip Sidney's, one of Sir Philip Sidney's poems from his famous, well, not so famous anymore, but once famous, Astrophil and Stella. We are doing the poem, Stella, since thou so write a princess art. And we're also doing a poem by Richard Barnfield. Richard Barnfield, who, with the advent of queer and LGBT studies in the academy, has come back to prominence because his poems are a little bit gay, a little bit a man lusting after another man. We are doing his poem, Cherry Liptodonis, in his snowy shape. Does that get you going, Sophie? That that poem made me very uncomfortable. <laughs> more more than leering over a woman, Sophie, you felt that, ooh, I feel like I've been let into something. It, it, it very much felt like I opened a door that I was to a room that I was very not welcome in. So I was like, okay, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, clo I'm closing it. I'm closing it. I'm closing it right now. Right now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Good day. Good day. I should have done this three three minutes ago. Goodbye. Like when you find a very specific deviant art page. Ooh, I hate that. That is that sounds kind of correct to that feeling that I got. You know how Shakespeare's poems can be a little homoerotic. This guy, no, this guy goes straight for the uh, for the uh, for the core. And of Shakespeare's plays, we are going to be doing Shakespeare's Sonnet Ten. For shame deny that thou best love to any. And also Sonnet 55. But to begin, Sophie, you've already 
given us a bit of an insight into your relationship with sonnets, your relationship with poetry, but what is your relationship to the Renaissance sonnet and to Shakespeare's sonnets? Ah, not much a relationship at all. I mean, obviously, I was made to do poetry at at school. Um, Maya Angelou is a name that I can recall. I'm sure we did uh, Ozymandias, because of course we did. There was Dolcea Decorum Est by I do not know whomst. Um, I'm actually surprised that I can recall three poems just off the top of my head. I'm actually, yeah, I'm very impressed by by that. Um, Dulce, Dulce et Decorum Est by Wilfred Owen. Yeah, about, I think it was about World War One and how there's mustard gas, how it was awful. 10 out of 10, very good poem. Um, <laughs> Ozymandias was quite fun. I, I vaguely remember a poem about um, Blossoms Unbutton. Some, it's, it was about spring and love, and um, it was cute. I liked the imagery, uh, but not enough to remember it, apparently. Um, and I know of one poem about the Song of Hope that uh, who's the uh, famous Internet Brothers? John Green and Hank Green. It was John Green that likes the poem about hope. And I, sh- I saw it on a TikTok or a YouTube short once. He, he, he is a man that appreciates art, and I am not that kind of person, at least not art that is very direct to me about its allegories. So this podcast really has been an educational experience for you. <laughs> it actually, yeah, no, and ironically, yeah, this I am, I am receiving an education of my own volition by subjecting myself to this podcast. It's been great. You were supposed to be taking part, but we'll work on that. No, I'm, I'm, I'm putting in my own, I'm putting in my own spin on things. I'm giving my opinions. That's part of the educational process when it comes to, you know, reading literature and reading poems. Is it not? Is it not? Yes, everyone's. Everyone's point of view brings a new lens to a work. That is what we can say about your lens. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Before we begin, we should probably go into just what a sonnet is. Sophie, what is a sonnet? Uh, a sonnet is a poem that usually has um, a set rhyming scheme. I think it's something like A, B, B, A, um, and a... I think it's a uh, CDE, CDE, or, uh, or uh, wait, there's an F in there somewhere because or else it won't make 14. Um, yeah, but usually 14 lines has a very strict um, rhyming, rhyming scheme, was very popular for a period. Um, I don't think they're as popular anymore. Um, well, poetry isn't as popular anymore in general. I mean, yeah, that's true. But I feel like um, free-form poetry is is all the rage because you can express yourself better that way, although I kind of disagree. I think a little bit of constraint in what you are allowed to do gives you license to be interesting, but... May that be written over the top of every BDSM club. Anyway. Oh, my gosh. Will I edit that joke out or will I leave it in? The sonnet, as Sophie says, is 14 lines and it also... No, I must start again. (laughs) I need to find a way to make this somewhat interesting. How about we just go into the poems and discuss them? Yeah, I think just go into the poems and discuss them. (laughs) 
Sir Thomas Wyatt. Sir Thomas Wyatt. Why are we including him? Ah, because apparently he was the first person to use the sonnet in English. The first recorded use of an English sonnet. When you hear that, you think, oh, surely, surely this is one of those things people say, but it can't be true. No, no, apparently, according to the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, he got there first. He did the first English sonnet. So. Wait, what? Then what? Then when, where did sonnets come from? Are they French? They are Italian, Italian. Oh, right. Sonnet, uh, a little song. God damn. I did not. It is. It is a. It is a crime that it, that that's weird. That my knowledge of the sonnet meaning little song is is coming into my brain right now. That's oh god. Oh god. Okay. Carry on. Sophia's realizing day by day that the majority of Western culture is puns. I hate this planet. Yeah, if you want to understand the true source of a sonnet, you have to go to the Italian, specifically to a man called Petrarch. Petrarch, sometimes considered the father of humanism. We are trying to keep to the English Renaissance for these poems, but if we wanted to, we could do Petrarch, because Petrarch not only seems to have invented the sonnet form, but he all... I don't know that, actually. I really shouldn't be saying that. He is certainly the one who popularised the sonnet form. And he also popularised quite a lot of the metaphors, quite a lot of the love poem metaphors that we see later on in English sonnets. Those sort of, sort of dodgy, sort of problematic metaphors where in a love story between a man and a woman, the woman is a deer and the man is a hunter, or the woman is a castle and the man is a besieging army. And yes, this view of love where it's very much a battle, where one will either break the woman into submission or the woman is a haughty mistress who will have nothing to do with the man. We have Petrarch to thank for that and we do thank him, don't we, Sophie? That's why I have you here, Sophie, to speak on behalf of your sex. Yes, we thank him very much. I very, very appreciate that. I am a mischievous mistress. A mischievous. What? And I own oh, it. Oh, Petrarch, the original girl boss writer. Ha 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 ha. Anyway. So Thomas Wyatt, he wasn't just a poet. He wasn't just a poet. This certainly, I don't think, was the time when you could make your living as a poet. So Thomas Wyatt, and I'm getting most of this information from the Encyclopedia Britannica and the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. So Thomas Wyatt, here's a good fact. His father was master of the king's jewels. Doesn't that sound like a metaphor, Sophie? Ah, indeed. Indeed, it does. And the son followed his father into court politics. He worked in the court of Henry VIII. And he almost followed his father as master of the king's jewels. But no, he stopped at clerk of the king's jewels. Not quite as euphemistic, I don't think. You are merely managing how the king's jewels are used by others. Mm. <laughs> Help me. This might be especially <laughs> fitting, given there's a lot of rumours going about in the historical record that maybe 
maybe Thomas Wyatt and Anne Boleyn had a little something going on. Mm, he really is mustering the king's jewels there. Uh, help me. Save me. Someone, please. Anyone. Although I should say that there, most historians would say he, he probably wasn't. He probably wasn't in an affair with Anne Boleyn. His family was merely allied with Anne Boleyn, and because of that, his own fortunes started to take a tumble when Anne Boleyn's fortune started taking a tumble. But he was quite a politically important man, and that's all we need to know about him. Great poet, somewhat interesting political figure. And this poem, if we wanted to take a biographical reading of this poem, it would help us quite a bit if he did have a relationship with Anne Boleyn, but unfortunately he probably didn't. So this isn't so that biographical reading is not there, but first of all, we should read out the poem. Sophie, do you want to read it? Uh sure. I, I, I will guarantee no goodness of my reading. Okay. Whoso list to hunt, I know where is an is okay, should I be saying an hind or an eind? In these days, they didn't pronounce H's. Whoso list to hunt, I know where is an eind, but as for me, alas, I may no more. The vain travail hath wearied me so sore, I am of them that farthest cometh behind. Yet may I by no means my wearied mind draw from the deer, but as she fleeth afore, fainting, I follow. I leave off, therefore, sithens in a net I seek to hold the wind, who list her hunt, I put him out of doubt, as well as I may spend his time in vain. And graven with diamonds and letters plain, there is written her fair neck round about. Noli mitangere, for Caesar's I am, and wild for to hold, though I seem tame. Lovely, lovely. Although, Although I'm quite excited to share my very first and very wrong impression slash reading of this. Uh, just, just to really illustrate how my poetry knowledge is not good. Well, go ahead, Sophie. Go yes. ahead. Because there is another probably wrong reading, or at least a dubious reading that I will go into. Yeah. For me, uh, I, I, my, my notes, my initial notes was, is this about Artemis and that hunter that got turned into a deer and was hunted by his own dogs? Because, um... Like for me, poetry, you use like, you know, fantastical allegory. Um, also, the, the previous two very long poems has sort of primed me into thinking, okay, this is going to be about Greek or Roman tragedy. It's going to be um, maybe about love, but just, you know, maybe with mythical undertones or overtones. So, and um, the first thing apparently that came to mind was, oh yeah, that guy that accidentally saw like um, the goddess of the moon and the hunt naked, and he and she was like, get him, girls, and he got wasted, um, which is a which may be not a flattering um, insight into my mind. But then I was like, wait, no, actually, there's no real mention of dogs. Um, fainting, I follow, not fainting, I fall. You know, so maybe, okay, so he's doing the chasing, clearly. So I just read it twice and went, okay, what does noli mi tangere even mean, Latin? And it means don't touch me. Um, no, touchies. Um, damn it. So, yeah, no, that's my first initial reading. 
until it actually occurred to me that oh it's just it's just an actual like person being in love and being denied that love or just giving up on it because he can't handle the girl this this poem has quite a common metaphor in renaissance love poetry the metaphor of a man the male lover being a hunter and the female lover being a deer. This is for some reason a very popular metaphor, perhaps. I mean, almost definitely this does tell us something about the way the Elizabethans thought of love. It is a, it's a game between man and woman where the woman plays hard to get and the man goes right after her. How little things have changed. Anyway, I mean that in a judgmental way. <laughs> to begin with, I'll say I tease the biographical reading that probably isn't real. The biographical reading of this play depends on the dubious historical idea that Sir Thomas Wyatt had an affair with Anne Boleyn. And what leads people to think that is where it says in the final lines, there is written her fair neck round about, nole me tangere, for Caesar's I am. And for Caesar's I am, so Caesar, the ruler, who was Anne Boleyn's husband, Henry VIII, the ruler. So don't touch me, because I am the king's wife. And also we have vague hints throughout the poem that this isn't merely him trying to get a woman who wants nothing to do with him. This is him following after a woman who perhaps he had a affair with i guess um from the second line i may know more since you know more implies there was something to begin with i guess the vain and the vain travail hath wearied me so sore no actually oh yeah that too um you know the vain travail just constantly running after all that jazz any chance um, Caesar could potentially just be God? And, you know, there is written her fair neck round about, Nolimitangere for Caesar's I am. Any chance um, this sonnet could be referring to, say, like a nun or a lady that has decided to be a spinster and dedicate herself to God? It is certainly could be something like that, because in these poems there is also the stock figure of the cruel mistress the mistress, the woman who the narrator wants, but for some reason or other, she absolutely refuses his advances. Although I would say that reading this poem, I do get the sense that this woman is not perhaps as chaste as those other cruel mistresses are. And the reason why I think that, may I actually find it? Dude, there's 14 lines. I am looking. I am looking, Sophie. <laughs> I will say already I am regretting this podcast episode. <laughs> it's not, it's one of those things where there's not actually, there's not that much to talk about. So you need to, and there's not much structure to talk about it with. Yeah, the problem with, um, any form of poetry, in my opinion, is that you have, again, um, it's more of a media literacy thing. Um, 
because do I really know how to read poetry? No, I went after I after my first like two, three rounds of reading this, I immediately went, Sir Thomas Wyatt, whoso to hunt, I know where is in hind analysis on Google. Cause and then it, it, it the poem was explained to me, and I was like, okay, so I was on the right track after my uh, initial. I was about to say misdiagnosis, but I'm going to call it misdiagnosis. Um, my initial misdiagnosis of Artemis and um, whoever the guide that died as a dog was, and Sonnet Seventeen, Richard Barnfield, which I will not read out loud yet is just i was going to actually i was going to say that i am already feeling that this will be a difficult episode to salvage so i was thinking how about we scrap the entire thing oh okay are you going okay shall we just are we going to scrap the entire thing (laughs) yes yes i think so okay i i i very quick i was already thinking "Mm, will this be it will we be able to structure this enough at the beginning and doing it now i think no no we can't oh dear oh well i'm okay with that like i really took a bare minimum of notes and i figured like by talking you know i'd be able to like figure out some feelings about it more especially um stella because Stella was very much a, a piece of a whole thing. So I was like, oh, okay, no, we probably need to talk more about this, the full thing as opposed to just the sonnet. I will just say, why does this seem so primordially eldritch is what I put down as initial thoughts for Sonnet 17. Ah, uh, you mean the Richard Barnfield one? Yep. I'd say because the way they did lots of... Uh, love poetry was to really just go piece by piece of the body talking about how beautiful their body parts were Uh, and because of that you need to use metaphors that perhaps go a bit far yeah no like uh his mouth a hive his tongue a honeycomb where muses like bees make their mansion and i'm just going oh god oh no 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 no! it's the bees it's the bees not the bees (laughs) So, yeah. I remember, yes, he. this is certainly, I, I, whenever I read that poem, the word hive really just, mm, that is, it, you, you went with metaphors, you need to be very selective. It's, <laughs> I, there was that Stuart Francis joke, I like my women like I like my coffee, picked by migrant workers. Oh my god. I like my women like I like my coffee, genetically modified for my pleasure. Oh, <laughs> but yes, you know her her mouth is like a her mouth is like a honeycomb, you know, because her words are sweet but also hives. There are bees in there. There are bees everywhere. Yeah, and the muses, like of course, like there's all there's so many muses in her mouth that speak of beauty, of song, and dance, and poetry, and philosophy. Like it's. A really effective way of of basically giving her a lot of praise, but also holy. Oh no, that's a lot of bees in your mouth. But also, like I like how it says, muses like bees make their mansion. It's like muses, and don't forget the metaphor here. I'm talking about a hive, so it's bees. Muses like bees make their mansion. It's it's. <laughs> I mean, that's that felt like a very tongue in cheek or bee in cheek parentheses to add. So very silly. Um. I, what I do like about this is that this is an incredibly 
conventional bit of love poetry from the way it describes the body from the metaphors it uses except it's about a man yeah it is about a man and that is the nothing else changes in this uh, i wonder is this a conscious artistic choice on this gay poet's part or is it that as a gay po i assume he's gay or is it that as a gay poet he really has no previous uh, models of how to write lusty poetry about boys. I mean, honestly, hard to say. Like, I'd have to, we'd have to stare at his other poetry to really, um, and maybe compare it to something similar uh, with, in terms of structure to maybe some other poets. But for me, I, if, it, if, if this had been about, you know, Venus, I still would have been, oh, God about it just because um I, it just kind of reminds me of that tumblr post that gets shared around on facebook a lot about how you know uh, snow white her lips as red as blood her skin as white as snow um eyes and hair black as ivory and it just makes you go if we know that they're exaggerations because if she actually literally looked like that she would look like a goddamn vampire um, I remember there was, from the time period or slightly after, there was a satirical drawing and it was just a guy drawing a face of a woman as if all the metaphors were true. So her hair was literally wheat, her eyes were literally suns, her lips were literally coral, her teeth were literally pearls. And as you can expect, <laughs> she looked terrifying. That's pretty great. But yeah, no, I, I think I would have a similar visceral, I don't like the look of this creature if it had been a woman described. And, and to be honest, it actually, actually makes a little bit more sense that it's Adonis um, being described because it's the one dude that made Venus slash Aphrodite the goddess of love and sex to fall for him. So what you almost have to be a little bit primordially be beautiful, like literally almost like eldritch. In... Uh, and, to be, and to be clear, that this is not Adonis. This is someone who's more pretty than Adonis. Very lift Adonis in his snowy shape might not compare with his pure ivory white. Oh, actually, yeah, that's a fair point. And I'm back to feeling gross again. I, I wish, oh no, I wish you hadn't broken my... um my misreading that this was about Adonis and not a person that is even prettier than Adonis. But you know what? My reading still stands in that you kind of have to be, you know, excessively beautiful and excessively um, attractive that you overshadow the dude that made Venus slash Aphrodite, the goddess of love and sex, fall in love with him. Um, but yeah, oh, how can such a body sin procuring be slow to love and quick to hate enduring is kind of what made me think it was about Adonis, the last two lines, because um, it's it's the exact same thing. Adonis is like, no, I don't want to. I don't want you. Um, so, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, no, I just, I would find this poem an unsettling no matter whomst the, the subject of it was terrifying. I like how we're still talking about this poem as if we are still doing this podcast. See, it's nice. We don't need to have content. <laughs>
we we can have real connections so we don't need to monetize or well, not monetize because we don't make any money but we don't need to make anything <laughs> uh, you ain't wrong am i the only one that found um the shakespearean po poems actually a little bit boring in comparison they are certainly done as arguments these have that is the genre he seems to be doing it's that poem which is done in the form of a sophistical argument yeah i mean i would the first one is essentially saying go on boy have a child you're so pretty i'd like to see your pretty kids and the other one is what was the other one about oh how basically your beauty and your love will like never die i will say though shakespeare's sonnets are a lot more considered, I guess, in their word use. Because um, Sir Thomas Wyatt's Whoso Lister Hunt, I know where is an eind, um, you know, it kind of describes the one thing and only the one thing, which is um, the decision to walk away from the pursuit of this woman because she is um, a man eater. Yeah, a man-eater or a man-eater that is also claimed by another more powerful man, so he has no chance anyway because an affair would be a bad idea. While um, Shakespeare's um, Sonnet 10, for example, um, which I first actually read as some as almost like a breakup letter, because um, I thought it was about a dude going, um, don't talk to me about love. You don't know what love is because... You don't feel it. Don't say you love me because you clearly don't. You only love yourself. And so, um, like, be gone. I don't, you may be gracious and kind, but I will never look at you in the face again because you clearly don't think me a person worth loving despite what I feel for you, not anything about children, which might actually you know, reinforce the whole, I don't know how to read poetry. And it's, and it also wouldn't help that uh, these poems, Shakespeare's poems, use grammar quite strangely and intentionally use the ambiguity of poem, po po ambiguity <laughs> of grammar quite strangely. Like, for shame, deny thou best love to any. So that could mean... You know, how dare you deny that you bear love to any? Or also it could mean because of shame you deny you love anyone. Yeah. But I guess that's kind of the, the joy of poetry that I find a little tedious, which is finding, crafting a small thing in such a way that you find the layers, you find the facets. Um, and I do not have the patience. I just, I, I just give me, give me the allegory straight, baby. <laughs> These poets, you say you love me, just say you love me. Don't go with all of these puns. Just say you love me, buy me flowers, God. Give me, give me an orange. Oranges were very expensive during the um during that period because they rotted before they could arrive from Spain, and you know, England was too was too cold to have them properly. So, you know, give me an orange, not flowers. Not a not not a poem. God. <laughs> you so your your husband gives you flowers, and you don't know that using the language of flowers, he said you're going to die young. Oh my god! Oh no! Good thing I can't read flowers either. 
Although Japan has a has a vague obsession with flower languages. I do like the line besmeared with sluttish thyme. Yeah, um, no. I would, why? The word slut originally just meant dirty. Still. I I remember there was that news story where a um a a UKIP member said look at all these sluts here. And he later on he said, when I said sluts, I meant it in the old-fashioned sense, as in women who don't clean behind the fridge. Seriously? Is that <laughs> what? I, he's trying he, he's trying to say, look, look, I'm not out of date. I I am not a fossil. I was merely using slut in a sense that no one has used it in for one hundred years. So a primordial fossil. <laughs> Jesus. Terrible. I did like Sonnet 55, though, because um, th that's actually very straightforward comparative to Sonnet 10. You know, not, not I'm just going to keep pretending like we're talking as if we're doing the podcast. Um, <laughs> not marble nor the gilded monuments of princes shall outlive this powerful rhyme, which, touche, bitch. Um, but you shall shine more bright in these contents than unswept stone besmeared with sluttish time. When wasteful war shall statues overturn and broils root out the work of masonry, nor Mars his sword nor war's quick fire shall burn the living record of your memory. Gainst death and all oblivious enmity shall you pace forth. Your praise shall still find room, even in the eyes of all posterity that wear this world out to the ending doom. So, to the judgment that yourself arise, you live in this and dwell in lovers' eyes. And that's a really nice poem. That's cute. It's actually really cute. It's also very straightforward. Although like, there, there is the... People commonly point out the, the ironic twist of the poem. He's saying, I shall memorialize you. But he says nothing about this person. We don't even know the gender. We know nothing about them. So he's saying, this monument to you will last forever. Ah, but isn't this just a bunch of uh, egotism? Because actually it's his poem and nothing of the person he's writing the poem about. I mean, I think, isn't that kind of the point? Because he is a jobbing writer. So he'd like to use this sonnet. I'm not not even sure who he wrote it for or or which specifically, not the person that he's addressing in the poem, but specifically the patron that he wrote it for. Um, I'm sure the patron would have loved to have used this for his own love or for her love. Um, and you and could use it for every single love you you could think of. You kind of can, like um, it could or it could be about you know um, chivalric glory after coming back from the. I was about to say crusades. I know crusades have been done and dusted for a few decades, if not centuries, by Shakespeare's time. But you know, wars still exist. Um, so it could be, and it could be just straight up about you know really intimate friendships. You know, gal pals. <laughs> um, and but 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 the power the poet the power of this poem I feel is that anyone who is reading it can dedicate it to their personal lover or just anyone close to their heart and still feel true because of Prince of the but that but you shall shine more bright in these contents 
but Lily shall shine more bright in these contents, but Jessica will shine more br bright in these contents. A, a, it doesn't just sound, it just doesn't sound as good when there's a name in there. Yeah, it just loses that luster to read out loud if it's clearly for someone that you yourself do not give a shit about. I prefer the cynical reading. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I was the way that I came to like Shakespeare was in university when my, my I had a Shakespeare professor, and his way of reading any work of literature was to say, What's what's the surface level reading? What's the reading that most people would come away with? Ah, but here's why it's secretly about the exact opposite thing. <laughs> Let me give you, let me read five levels deep into the words and into the historical context, and I can show you that actually Shakespeare wants to destroy the system. Boo. Too much cynicism, not enough romance. Poetry should be about romance, shouldn't it? Let us walk together, you and I, while all the sky is laid out etherized upon a table. Ah. Whenever. I remember that that line because I, this was, I distinctly remember, it was in high school, final year of high school, they took us to a university to sit through a few lectures about literature with a lot of other high school students. And this was about T.S. Eliot's, uh, I forget what it was called, but there was one girl in the audience saying, when I was reading this, I thought that poetry should be romantic, but that poem wasn't romantic. What? No, I don't know. I have no idea. Let me find it out, Lena. I definitely know the line, so like a patient etherized upon a table. Ah, uh, it's called The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. <laughs> it's a poem that begins with an untranslated quote from the Dante's Divine Comedy. Okay, that, that, that sounds daunting. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask, what is it? Let us go and make our visit. Beautiful, romantic. Okay, no, that was odd. that was surprisingly drier than I had feared it would be. Ah, uh, but let me. Sh here's a poem that might be more uh, huh, that might be a bit more uh, plucky. It's "This Be the Verse" by Philip Larkin. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. Okay. They may not mean. To. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with all the faults they had and add some extra just for you. <laughs> See, I like that poem in that it's very direct with what it's saying. It is truly, it is true. It's one of those poems that you use to get kids into literature. Mm-hmm. The kids are saying, hang on, they do fuck you up. Hang on, wait, that is true. God damn it. Ah, so, so dumb. I like how we I, basically haven't touched Sir Philip Sidney's um, sonnet, despite the fact that it's the, the one before Shakespeare's one. And I blame it on being just a snippet of a larger whole. 
We should do. He did a poem. He did no. He did a, a novel called Arcadia, and this is notable for being one of the few in in lots of drama. There's women dressing up as men. That's very common. In his Arcadia, it's a male knight dressing up as an Amazon knight. So that's good. Ah, oh, that is good. No, ten out of ten. That doesn't happen often. We'd have to read what's called the old Arcadia because I. The one that was the Arcadia that was published was published after his death, but it's one of those things where whoever was publishing it seems to have found an early draft or thought it would be good for the sake of Philip Sidney to publish every single bit of material that was inside Arcadia, which leads to a very thick and very boring book. Because, um, yeah, this is also a very, um, arguably direct, um, sonnet in that. Stella, since thou so write a princess art of all the powers which life bestows on me, there ere by them ought undertaken be, they first resort unto that sovereign part. Sweet, for a while give respite to my heart, which pants as though it still should leap to thee, and on my thoughts give thy lieutenancy to this great cause, which needs both use and art. And as a queen who from her presence sends, whom she employs, dismiss from thee my wit, till it have wrought what thy own will attends. On servants' shame oft master's blame doth sit. O oh, let not fools in me thy works reprove, and scorning say, see what it is to love, which um, either reprove or louve. Like, what's the correct pronunciation to get that rhyme? The pronunciation of both those syllables is oeuvre. I love thy works reprove and scorning say see what it is to love yeah terrible apparently the modern irish accent has more in common with shakespeare's accent than the modern english accent because in the 1590s or so the english really started forcing their proper english pronunciation onto ireland but then a few generations later the english accent changed but the Irish accent stayed very common. So therefore, the Irish kept the proper Shakespearean English, whereas the English lost it. Yeah, unsurprising. Like, that's kind of what irony and language does, doesn't it? It evolves, usually. But yeah, no, this one's pretty straightforward, although, and, and kind of wastes the first, like, five lines. Since thou so right a princess art, since so good a princess you are, of all the powers which life bestows on me, there ere by them ought undertaken be. Like, there ere by them ought undertaken be. That is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven words saying should. Come on. I have 14 lines and I will fill them. Fill them better. Quality, not quantity. But yeah. If you made it any shorter, it wouldn't be a uh, sonnet. But there are better things to say than there, ere, by them, ought undertaken be. <laughs> that line is so also infuriating to read out loud. There, ere, by them, ought undertaken be. They first resort unto that sovereign part. Sweet, for a while, give respite to my art which pants as though it still should leap to thee, 
and on my thoughts give thy lieutenancy to this great cause which needs both use and art and as a queen who from her presence sends whom she employs dismiss from thee my wit till it have wrought or thy own will attend on servant shame off master's blame doth sit oh let not fools in me thy works reprove and scorning say see what he is to lose yeah beautiful yeah it's fine like stella and aristophile you said stella and astrophel astrophel um that's about as stella is married and Ast astrophel is the dude that uh a they have an affair with each other until she says nah and astrophel is like oh please and she says nah and that's the story I'll admit I haven't read it, so I can't tell you. I have not either. I, I also went Sir Philip Sidney, Stella Since Thou So Writer, Princess Art, Analysis on Google and hoped for the best. And um, what it seemed to say is that it was a series of, okay, no, pressbooks.pub. Um, Astrophil and Stella is a series of 108 sonnets interspersed with 11 songs and is about a love affair. The narrator, Astrophil, falls in love with Stella, who he believes will be his partner in life because Astrophil is the author, quotation marks, in the sequence. We become aware of the dropped hints of his inner thoughts and emotions. Stella's actions are later revealed through the speeches to Astrophil. In the beginning, Stella does not bestow any affection on Astrophil and it becomes clear that the feelings aren't mutual. Uh, Stella is still kind, so the typical incel situation. Astrophil later discovers the woman he deeply loves is married to another man. Yeah, that's why she, she kept saying no boy during the marriage stella also discovers that she is unhappy which makes astrophil become more in tune with his feelings for her he eventually grows to love stella not only by being in her presence but also by gaining knowledge of what and who she is stella then returns astrophil's affection though stella isn't completely satisfied at the end of the sonnet astrophil tries to persuade her into making love with him despite her marriage vows as a result stella ends the relationship and begins to let him know that the affair could no longer be consummated even though stella loves astrophil she will not continue to break her marriage vow that's a very long summary but it is again about 108 sonnets does it make you want to read them all no no with 11 songs interspersed. That's a novel. It should be a novel. Unluckily, the novel didn't really exist back then. Yes, that is true. But that's that's what... That's, uh, the Japanese, like everything else, the Japanese got to that technological innovation before <laughs> I mean, that's what you get when you have, like, uh, teenage women uh, and then up to their 30s, bored out of their mind, locked inside and clothed that weigh like 30 kgs. So all you, gotta, all you can do is write, you know. That's all, that's all you can do. You can only write about sexy men who cry all the time. I mean, that was the beauty standard when um, the Pillow Book and um, the Genji Monogatari. Genji Monogatari. Genji Monogatari. That, that last tone was strictly unnecessary and very not with the vibe of the novel. God. I, rem <laughs> it's, I remember there was some guy who was saying that there is a kind... It was some guy talking about the Yakuza games. There is a kind of tone that only exists in Japanese where you start by saying blah 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 blah, 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 blah. 
<laughs> and it's true, isn't it? You notice that everywhere now. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> is it impossible for that for that way of speaking to exist in any other language? I'm sure, like, I'm sure it happens in English as well. Surely, like, it happens with the. Ever since thou so right a princess art, all the powers which life bestows on me, all by all undertaken me. <laughs> no, no, terrible. But yeah. At some point, we're going to have to watch one of Kurosawa's Shakespeare things. Oh, no. People keep telling me that I need to watch Kurosawa films. And every time I go, but I'm not a film buff. I don't. I only watch dumb movies. You can watch the one where Toshiro Mifune is fired at with real arrows. Oh, Christ. The poor man. You can see the terror on his face. As, no, no, that really is hurtling towards my face very near me. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Terrifying. The poor man. <laughs> oh. Well, he was a Christian, so he, he would have... He, he, I assume that he would have been happy to die. No, my God. <laughs> yeah, reincarnation. At least you get a second chance, but you got to get to go back down the ladder first, don't you? Start as a fish. Maybe you can go back to being a four-legged thing and then finally becoming human again. Then be good. Then, then achieve Nirvana. Ten out of ten. Took 10 tries. And you're currently on your 500th. Probably. Probably. And of course, we will eventually. Actually, we could be doing Requiem of the Rose King. <laughs> you ain't wrong. That is definitely a thing that we could be doing. Or for something shorter, Osamu Tezuka's, one of Osamu Tezuka's surprisingly many Shakespeare-influenced works. Yeah, let's let's stick to one of those, because the, isn't the Requiem of the Rose King, like, still going? Let me check. I know if, I know um, it got adapted into an anime, like, last year. I, we, we watched the first episode. And it was and so bad. We watched two episodes of it. Uh, it finished last January. Oh, did it? So the... the... So the book's finished. The manga's finished. Yeah. Okay. It's 17 volumes. Seven. So, but with the, 17 but volumes. The, the thing about uh, the, the anime is like you could tell the, the first episode seemed to have a low budget. But then you realize in the second episode, oh no, they're putting most of their budget into that first episode. Yeah, and it's, it's actually impressively bad, the second episode as well. And then they rushed through so much content. What were they doing? Why were they rushing? That's a silly thing to do. But anyway. Um... Uh, oh, no, no, so Sophie, I found something. I found something. Oh, no. There is a spin-off manga oh. called King of Idol. King of Idol. Baro no oh, no. It's, it's all the characters, but as an idol team, aren't they? It's a high school AU. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> we are not reading that. <laughs> Apparently it's still ongoing, but there was only one volume released in 2021. So hopefully they thought better of it. Thank God. Yeah, I, I hope so, because we are not reading it. <laughs> we are, I promise you we are not reading it. Correction, I promise you I am not reading it. You can do whatever you like. Ah, I like how on Wikipedia it says created by William Shakespeare and Ayakano. Uh, yeah, as though Shakespeare... I had any say in this. Yes. Oh, I hate it when um Audible is like, oh, we have a new book by Shakespeare. And it's like, he's dead. You can't 
released a new book by William Shakespeare. William died over 1,000 years ago. Like, actually, so apparently for a while, there was some rule with the Library of Congress was that any works by a dead author that were acquired via automatic writing techniques were listed under that author's name. Uh, I I mean, like it's not it's not wrong in that it, it's made by them, but it's not a new thing that they've they've you know what I mean? You know what I mean? It's fine. Ah, ah, don't like Moto. Okay, so you know Moto Hagio. Who? One of the pioneering 1970s shoujo manga authors who did one of the first great works of boys love manga, The Heart of Thomas, Tomasu no Kokoro. Okay, no, I, I did not know who this was, but carry on. She praised, she praised Requiem of the Rose King as a whole new Richard III, quote, more interesting than Shakespeare. <laughs> Wow! Oh, that is a hot take. That is a hot take. Uh, I like it. What? I like the hot take. Oh, but, appara but apparently, um, when they were doing the actual Henry VI play in Tokyo, the new National Theatre of Tokyo, the actor of Henry VI, Kenji Urai, said that he's a big fan of the manga. Of course he is. So let's hope, let's hope that he put a little something of that, that manga into his performance. Uh, I... Let's hope he kissed Richard on the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and and the skuller was dead dad because of course oh shouldn't i should, should i have not said that should we have left that as a surprise for the now probably inevitable requiem of the rose king bonus episode that we're going to be doing are you still acting as if we're going to publish what we've been talking about yeah, i'm still kind of you know acting as if we're publishing what we're talking about we're talking for an hour it's worth and it'd be funnier if we just like kept the part where you're like i don't know what what i'm doing this i'm not going to submit it and i you have this clip here going yeah we're gonna submit it why not i feel that a joke of one hour outstays its welcome hey! it was good content it's still good content <laughs> all right i'll send you this i'll send you this and you edit it sophie oh. It's a bit of a. Sh the title is um, a chaos of sonnets, uh, an, an absolute mess, and that's edited by Sophie. I didn't. I this. I am already regretting choosing choosing to do this, but whatever, it's fine. <laughs> okay, and that is the end. That is the end. I, that is where I'm going to cut the 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 podcast off, Sophie. Ooh. <laughs> You're going to. I'd say that to make it a manageable thing for you to edit, I'd say that. Officially, let's end that thing right there. <laughs> yeah, no fair. Um, and and next time, <laughs> what are we doing next time? We are doing Richard the Second. Richard the Second, like George Lucas, Shakespeare went to the prequel second. We had the first historical tetralogy, which was Henry the Sixth, Part One to Three, and then Richard the Third. Ah, let's go back to the past. Starting with Richard II. Is this as good as Henry VI Part 1? Mm -hmm. Do you think it will be, Sophie? I mean, Do you think we'll have uh, Team Rocket alikes in Richard II? I... Did you just say Team Rockets? Remember, remember that's the, how we compared 
Joan of Arc to Meowth and the oh. French king and his crew as Jesse and James. Oh, oh, damn. Yeah, you're right. I'd forgotten about that. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, like, considering Richard II, I had never heard of this play before. I'm going to assume that it's not that great. I don't, I'm not, not going to have very high expectations of it. <laughs> it is. It has quite a lot of Shakespeare's honeyed lines. Shakespeare's pen really was a hive. Full of musings. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Will this actually make it online? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Thank you for listening to Shakespeare and Pal. A list of references to the work cited in today's episode can be found in the episode description. The opening, interstitial, and closing music of this podcast is a public domain recording of Henry Purcell's The Fairy Queen, sourced from newsopen.org. Thank you for listening.